Okay, we are in uh, in Luke, Luke chapter um, Luke chapter seventeen, and we are reading just the last verse there. Luke chapter seventeen, verse thirty-seven. This is the only verse that we haven't yet covered in Luke seventeen. And remember, we're in the chronological life of Jesus, and then. After Jesus speaks about his second coming, remember he, he talks about his second coming, which we covered last time. He finishes it finishes with this verse. It says, And answering they said to him, This is in Luke seventeen, verse thirty seven, and answering they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Which is somewhat of a cryptic answer. So they ask him, where is this going to take place? Where are these things going to take place? And he gives this answer. And what he's presupposing here is some knowledge of the Old Testament passages on the, the, uh, uh, the coming uh, of, of the Lord. And, and there's three passages in particular. We're not going to look at it, but if you'd ever like to, to check it out, it's in, it's in Jeremiah 48. Verse thirteen and fourteen. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, Isaiah verse uh, chapter thirty four verse one through seven, and and Isaiah sixty three verse one. So those three verses, and that that first one I said Jeremiah forty eight. It should be Jeremiah forty nine verse thirteen and fourteen, and it talks about where this second coming of the Lord is going to take place, where this battle is going to take place. And this battle is very specific in the Old Testament. It says it's going to take place in Basra. And in Greek, in the New Testament, that's Petra. And that's on the east side of the Jordan. So, so Israel, current day Israel is on the west side of the Jordan. Israel originally was both on the east and the west side of the Jordan. And, and uh, so, so Israel's today on the west side of the Jordan. Basra's on the east side. So current day Jordan is where this, this last battle is going to take place. This, uh, uh, it's just across, across the river from, uh, uh, say, Jericho, around in that, that southern part of uh, the Jordan there, is, is where, where Basra is. And that's where this is going to take place. So let's turn on over to the next chapter. This is now Luke chapter 18. This is the next portion in the chronological life of Jesus. And then he starts to give them two parables on prayer. And the first one is in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and to not lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So let me just point out from that last verse that I just read. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? 
this tells us that he's still speaking about his second coming. So even though we've had a chapter change, there are no chapters and verses in the original text. So this is very much in keeping with his speaking about the second coming. And now when he tells them this parable, he doesn't say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Other parables, sometimes he would say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. But he's not comparing himself to this judge here. Because he even says of this judge that he was an unrighteous judge. And he says, if this unrighteous judge does this, how much more will your heavenly father do it? So he's using this unrighteous judge as a reference point and saying if even he answers this woman who cries out to him day and night, how much more will your heavenly father do? So he's not comparing himself to this judge. He's using this judge as a reference point. In verse 1 of that passage, it says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. The scriptures are extremely specific. It says at all times they are to pray and to not lose heart. At all times they are to pray. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul in the epistles goes into something he, he's, he talks about praying always. So what could he mean? How do you pray at all times? You might have a time of prayer in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. How do you pray at all times? And you will see that as you practice offering up prayers to God throughout the day, this is praying at all times. You can be working in a laboratory and just speaking up prayers to the Lord. You have to go in and you have to speak to somebody and you can offer up a prayer to the Lord. Lord, help me to speak to that individual. Offering up prayers to God. This is what the scripture is calling us to do. He tells us... At all times we are to pray. And it's not like we have to beat ourselves on the back and we have to just only have that individual prayer time, which is absolutely necessary, as we'll see. But we must also have this ability to offer up silent prayers to the Lord. Silent prayers to the Lord. You're driving along in a car. You can be praying. You're, You're going into a meeting or there's a phone call you have to make. Very often, before I'll make a phone call, if I know I have to deal with a certain situation, I'll offer up a prayer to the, to the Lord. Lord, help me on this call. Lord, help me to say and to speak the things that are of you. Somebody, some, somebody will come to you one day and want counseling, want input. And what you can do is you can start to speak about things. And, and, and before you even start speaking about things, you can pray, Lord, help me to know what to say to them. Very often you'll find yourself and you'll catch yourself, Lord, help me. This is what he's talking about. He says we always ought to pray. Then he says in this city was a certain judge. He says the judge didn't fear God or respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, Lord, give me, uh, asking the judge, give me legal protection from my opponent. Now it's very interesting that he took a woman appealing for legal protection Because women had no legal standing in that day. Even in Israel today, or in the recent past, women had very different legal standing than men. Uh, uh, Certainly when it came into issues, for example, of divorce. But 
In that day, women had no legal standing. And here he takes this analogy of a woman who's coming and appealing to this judge. And the judge wanted to have nothing to do with her. Nonetheless, she requested so much that he said in verse 5, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. So, again, it underscores that this is a widow. So, not only does the woman have no legal protection, she has no husband to protect her or to make formal appeal to the judge. So, there was this huge differential in power between this woman and this judge. Yet she appealed so often, the judge gave her what she wanted. And in verse 6, it says, the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cried to him day and night? So now he's not saying praying at all times. He's speaking to, him, to us about specific prayers day and night. So he's saying that there's this constant offering up of prayers. If we consider this in the context of the second coming, then it's speaking about, as Jesus taught us to pray, he says, thy kingdom come. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we acknowledge God is in heaven. We praise him initially. This is how he told us to pray. This is the pattern that he's given us in prayer. Then he says, thy kingdom come. She was appealing and he was saying, pray that the kingdom of God comes. Then he says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And we say, well, you know, since Jesus' first coming, we're now two thousand, over 2,000 years into this thing, and we've not seen his second coming. So let me have you read a verse on that. There's a verse that covers this specifically in Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Peter is talking about the, the second coming of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But, his word, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So by this, we know that the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. The scriptures clearly say that. So if you see floods coming, you say the earth is going to be destroyed by floods again. Not going to happen. That happened before. The next time that the earth is destroyed, it's going to be destroyed by fire. In fact, in, in Peter, it, say, it even says the fire will be so hot that the elements themselves will burn. Which is really quite interesting because if you think of a nuclear-based process, you can, you can envision that a, a, a actually much more closely. In, 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 in verse 8 it says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that, the, that, the Lord, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So he says, with the Lord, a thousand days is like one year. So we're a couple thousand years into this. So from the Lord's perspective, we're only two days into this thing. That's what it says. And he says, don't think that this is slowness. He says, the reason there's delay in his second coming is he's giving people an opportunity to repent, to come to repentance. 
God is very merciful. He is merciful in delaying this. Had he, had he come 35 years ago, before I came to the Lord, I'd have been in big trouble. Had he come five years ago, some of you would have been in big trouble. God is gracious. This is why there is this, in our perception, this delay. But it's not slowness on the Lord's part. It's not a slowness. So let's turn back to Luke chapter 18. He's telling us to always pray. Here the Lord is appealing to us. Turning back to verse 1, He's telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. At all times pray and not lose heart. It is hard for me to speak about this. And it's hard because I fail in this. I don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. And in fact, you will rarely find a person that concedes that they pray enough unless they truly don't pray enough and they don't understand prayer. But for those who understand prayer, it's a very rare thing that they will say, oh yeah, I pray enough. And he says, at all times we ought to pray and not lose heart. I mean, here's the Lord telling us, pray and don't lose heart. Because sometimes you can pray, you say, well, you know, I pray. Well, don't lose heart, you pray more. And this is why when he says at the end, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Are there going to be people who really still believe? Are there going to be people who really have faith here on earth? Let's turn down to the next teaching on prayer, which is in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. So, in verse 9 it says, And he also told them this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So now he's giving us a teaching. He's giving us this teaching on prayer. But he's speaking specifically, it says, to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And I would dare say that all of us have fallen into this. And all of us will fall into this. So this is really for all of us. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. So look what was set up here. Again, a huge differential in power. One a tax collector. A tax collector was the lowliest people, considered them the lowliest people, because they were in many senses viewed as traitors. You know, Worse than a defector is a traitor. Somebody who not not just goes to the enemy, but someone who works on behalf of the enemy. In any culture, being a traitor is the lowliest of people. And this is what what a tax collector was considered because they were Jewish men who would work for the Roman government to collect taxes from Jews. Why did they have to get Jewish men? Because Jewish men in the city knew what everybody else made. And they knew what everybody else's business was. So somebody couldn't just say, well, you know, I only made $10,000 this year. You're like, hey, come on, come on, come on. I know you. I know you got this business on the side. So they always found a local person to work on their behalf. So they were considered the lowliest of people. 
And then on the other side of that, you have a Pharisee. And Pharisees were considered scholarly. They were like, like professors of today. And the reason for that is that he doesn't use the word Sadducee because Sadducees were descendants of Aaron. So they were of the priestly class. That came from descendancy. That you just fall into. Pharisees you had to work your way up into. So you worked your way up into being a scholar by advanced religious teachings and by observing many rules and regulations, quite unlike the Sadducees. So people viewed the Pharisees, hey, they've really attained to this really high place. So again, he's, he's painting this picture, this huge contrast. It says in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Look at this. He was praying to himself. What, what an interesting play on words. He was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is speaking to those of us who trust somehow in our own righteousness to be coming to God and viewing others with contempt. Remember, all of us can fall into this, that I am in some way better than another person. He says, two people go into a temple to pray, the Pharisee, the tax collector, the Pharisee stood. And this action of standing is not unusual. You will find that, that, that when, when Jews stand when they pray, very often they stand when they pray. If you go to the Great Wall today, you will see Jews standing and praying. This is a common way. They would sit down to teach, and you will often see Jesus sat down and began to teach. That is the way rabbis taught. That is the way rabbis often teach today in Orthodox synagogues. You go in there, and you will see the rabbi sitting down. When they pray, they stand up. So the rabbi was standing, and he was praying this to himself. Look how Jesus characterized this. He doesn't even say he was praying this to God. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he probably was not a swindler. He probably was not unjust in his own eyes. He probably had never committed adultery, or he would not be saying this. And he wasn't a tax collector. And he's saying, thank you, I'm not like that. He says, I fast twice a week. You can look at Pharisaic writings. Today you can see this, and many Orthodox Jews will still observe this to this day that Monday and Thursday are their fast days. They won't eat on Mondays or on Thursdays. They fast those days and they pray. So, so that is a, it was a typical practice for them. They would fast and pray. Now, fasting and prayer is a good thing. The New Testament speaks of fasting and praying. Jesus said, when you fast, so he, he presupposes that we are fasting. He says, when you give alms, so he presupposes that we're giving. So, so giving alms and fasting are a good thing. But this man was justifying himself because of his fasting. 
He says, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on all of that I get. And Jesus even underscored the fact, the fact that Pharisees pay tithe on everything. Everything they pay tithe on. Um, so so they, Jesus even said, he said, you pay tithe on even mint and rue. But you've forgotten the weightier things. So they even paid tithe on every little bit of, of uh, um, mint. Every little bit of spices they picked up from their garden. They were sure to, to give 10% away. They paid a tithe on everything. So they were really diligent on this. Paying tithes is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But what happens is if we start to justify ourselves, now God is going to hear me because I've not done this and this and this, and I've done this and this and this, therefore He will hear me. No way. He hears us because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And this is what gives us hope. This is why He hears us. And then He compares it to this tax collector who's standing some distance away and was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. And he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. So look at this man, the way he he viewed himself. He couldn't even look up toward heaven. He's just beating his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's not even a sinner like a bunch of other sinners. Oh, well, we're all sinners. No, in his eyes, he wasn't even... Be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, I am the one with the problem. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus goes on, he says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Look at what he starts to speak to us. He speaks of this this attitude that when we start raising ourselves up, and this is this thing of pride is so insidious. If you think you've gotten beat, you've gotten it beat, you're wrong. As soon as you think you've got this thing of pride licked, you're proud. You know, that, that's how strange it is about this thing. He constantly puts things before us to show us how to be free of this attitude. So, so turn, for example, um, turn to Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians chapter 2. Book of Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start reading um, from verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So look at what Jesus does through the Scriptures. He gives us things that we need to practice in order to keep us from pride. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says that, that, uh, um, he says that, that the Germans, when they, they, they disliked the Jews... 
what they did is they, they segregated them and they kept them into certain parts of town in the ghettos. It says that you, you would think then that, okay, this pacified their hatred of the Jews. Well, that wasn't enough, so they had to start busting their store windows and making life very difficult for them. And you'd think that this would pacify their hatred. It didn't pacify it. So then they, they took them and they put them in concentration camps. And so you would think, okay, now my hatred for them is, is taken care of. No, that wasn't enough. And then they exterminated them. And you'd think that, okay, now that's taken care of their hatred. But still, the hatred didn't end. That's why the scriptures say you overcome evil with good. So how do you start loving somebody? How do you start to love somebody? You do something for them. And it will cause you to love them more. So I've, I've done this with, with, with many people. They say, oh, you know, my boss is just, just you know, mean to me. My, you know, I don't get along with her and something. And say, well, what does your boss like? Does your boss like coffee? Oh, yeah, she's always coming in with a cup of Starbucks coffee in the morning. I said, okay, here's what you do. You go at lunchtime, you find out what kind of coffee she drinks, and you bring her a cup of Starbucks coffee after lunch. And you give that to her. Because when you give that to her, it will cause you to love her more. And you will win her over. When you do acts of good for other people, it causes you to love them more. You overcome evil with good. It causes you to be free of this attitude of contempt. And this attitude of conceit. You do something for them. You do a physical act for them. And, and so C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, if you did like them, what is it that you would do for them? If you did like them, what would you do for them? And then go and do that. If you did like them, what would you do for them? Then go and do that. And that will cause you to love them all the more. And this is why when it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. You do nothing from hoarding for yourself, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you see how great an ethic this is? I mean, where are you going to learn to live like this? Where will you learn this? And the Word of God puts this right in front of our face and then commands us. It says, do not, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. It doesn't say don't look out for your own personal interests. You have to say, don't merely look out for your own personal interests. You've got to pay your bills but also for the interests of others. This is what he calls us to. And this is why he says you have this Pharisee on the one hand and you have this tax collector on the other. And he wants us to be free from this attitude of contempt and conceit. And he does other things in our lives to keep us from this attitude of conceit like, I know more than him. Or I'm more spiritual than them. He does other things to keep us from this. Look in, uh, um, look in 2 Corinthians. In 2, Corinth, in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter um, 
chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be reading from verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Now, what, what Paul is explaining here is Paul was given visions about Jesus. When Paul got saved, Paul didn't go and get instructed by other people like all of us do or like normal people do. It says, the scriptures say that Jesus himself met with Paul and instructed him. Jesus himself instructed Paul. So who was Paul's teacher in the things of faith? It wasn't the other apostles. It was Jesus himself. He was taken up, it says, to the third heaven. And Jesus instructed him and taught him all these things. All the things that the other apostles knew because they had lived and walked with Jesus. Paul was never there living and walking with Jesus. So he had to get, you know, the the short course in this. So he's taken up to the third heaven. And he was given this course. Because of the surpassing riches of these revelations, something else was given to Paul, or else he might be conceited. It says in verse 7, or because of this, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, or because of the surpassingly great, these surpassing great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul was at risk of becoming conceited. Yeah. So what Jesus did to keep Paul from being conceited because he had had this special one-on-one training from the Lord Himself. He gave him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him. Now, we don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh is. It was some sort of physical ailment. Some people think it was that, that Paul's eyes, were, that he had a lot of trouble with his eyes because in one case he says of one of the, the books that he's writing, he says, see, this is written in my hand, making note of the way he wrote. And there's another passage which says, and the people in that community wanted to take out their very eyes and give them to Paul. That's how much they loved him. We don't know if it was his eyes that he had eye trouble, but something came upon him at that time so that he knew of his utter weakness. He was so aware of his weakness that it kept him from getting conceited because he had this thorn in the flesh. You know, God does that sometimes. He did something in Paul's life to keep him from getting conceited. Do you not think that he might do this in our lives too? Let me, let me, let me reveal something about myself. There, there are sometimes I think, Lord, why, was, why wasn't I made, you know, like six foot two and really handsome? You know, so, sometimes I think that, that uh, love must be blind for Shireen to have married me. But God put me exactly where I need to be. If I were, you know, just that, that image in my own mind of what a, a, a grand image is, I mean, I would be so conceited. 
if in my present state, I battle with pride. Imagine if I were in a different state, how much I would battle with pride. Do you see what I mean? And so then it turns it a whole thing around. It's like, Lord, thank you for exactly how you made me. Thank you for the way I am. Because life would be so much more difficult to walk in a godly way if I were fashioned in exactly my image of what perfection is. Do you see what I mean? God does with us and places us exactly where we need to be and exactly in the state that we need to be. And we undergo trials and struggles in our life to keep us from being conceited, to keep us from rising into places we ought not, lest we look with disdain and contempt upon another and think, I'm better than them. God does this in our lives. He puts us in these places. If he had to do this with Paul, such a godly man, to keep him from getting conceited, I mean, how much more frankly could the guy speak? He says, I had a problem. And God gave this to me to keep me from getting conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I had. He does things. And he reveals to us And he says, when you pray, just remember God is in heaven, you are on earth, and beat your breast and say, Lord, thank you for saving me, the sinner. Then you walk to your house justified. But as soon as I start looking at myself better than my fellow man, the word is Pharisee. Pharisee. You can walk away from your prayer time thinking you did well, but you're not justified. Look at the place Jesus wants to keep us. This is such a good thing. Because when we get in a place like this, when we get in a place like this, it keeps us more open to Him. It keeps us more like Him. He says, look out for the interests of others. Consider others more important than yourself. I was traveling with a colleague. I just got back from Japan. And this colleague of mine were were waiting for this elevator and we had waited for quite some long time. And as we were waiting, there were some other people filing in behind us and this elevator came. And so I get in the elevator, everybody gets in. And then this colleague of mine is standing outside the elevator, even though we were there first and he let everybody get on. And then there was no room for him. And then they finally said, no, no, you got to come on too. And they made room for him. So he gets on. So he gets on last. Then we go up like one floor to the mezzanine and it stops and there's someone out there they want to get in so it stops he gets out and he lets them in so that they can go up and I talked to him later on I said you know I learned a lot from you today what made you do that what made and he is a believer I said what made you do where did you learn to do that he says I learned that from my father my father taught me that he said I'm going to start doing that You know, that that he got out, let the elevator go, but that spoke volumes to me about the character of this person. I didn't know him very well. This is the first time I traveled with him. I only met him about a month before. But that spoke to me volumes of the character of this individual. When he preferred others over himself, even in this small thing, which means he's going to get to his room later, you know, three minutes later than I will. 
or two minutes later than I will. But preferring others over yourself. What a beautiful ethic we have in the Scriptures. What beautiful things Jesus has taught us. And this is what He wants to underscore. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word which teaches us, which guides us. Father, I pray for these young people that You would instruct them in prayer to not lose heart, but to pray, to learn how to offer up prayers day and night and also offer up these small prayers throughout the day and to not lose heart and to not lose faith in their lives. Father, I pray that You teach them how to pray and to not look with conceit upon others and to be thankful for the way they look for who they are, for the places that You have placed them in life. And Father, for those here that don't know You, draw them to Jesus, I pray, that they too could walk as Jesus walked. Father, I pray that their souls would be saved, that they would be able to beat their breasts and say, Oh God, save me, the sinner. Father, I pray that You call them to Jesus. And I lift this up to You for the glory of Jesus. Amen.